Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> Josh Bertram. Welcome back, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. My coup went well. <laughs> Good. Thanks for uh, thinking of me. Well, last episode, what I, I, I mentioned that you were sitting on a high-profile jury case in Kenosha. Um, so <laughs> hopefully that, that got sorted out. Uh, but this I week, think it's getting sorted out. <laughs> but this week we have uh, with us um, Scott Clement, um, who is the polling director for Washington Post. Um, he conducts national and local po- polls about politics, elections, and social issues and we are so excited to have you on scott thank you so much for being here glad to join you um so scott we have a lot to talk about um with regards to polling um now um josh and i before the episode we took a poll um, amongst ourselves that we think is representative (laughs) of our audience and found that 98 percent of our audience have no clue how polls work so um, maybe you can kind of like start 30,000 foot view, um, kind of like what are polls, you know, why do we do them? Um, and then and then kind of whittle it down to, you know, maybe some of the mechanics of a poll. Sure. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't count. I, I wouldn't count your audience out. I imagine many of your audience are are smart consumers of politics like you all and uh, that, you know, your way around a poll here or there. But, you know, it, it is a, it can be a complicated world out there. Uh, so I'm happy to walk through some of the, the, the details or the basics or broad overview. I mean, so the uh, public opinion polls have been around, uh, you know, w- from the beginning of the 20th century, even a little before, but they didn't start becoming sort of scientific or tool until the 30s. And of course, the, the, the biggest purpose these days is uh, to measure what people think on political, social issues, other things, things about the coronavirus have been very common. Um, and the, you know, there's the, the poll, the, the science of sampling and things that are a tool, which the main purpose is to draw conclusions about the population from a relatively small sample of people. Uh, but uh, the other big part, you know, that I spend most of my time on is thinking about how we can use polls to measure relevant political attitudes. Uh, that can range. Classic thing is, you know, who 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 would you support if the election were held today? Because um, that's a, a very important question. Is of course how people will vote. We want to know. We want to understand that. Uh, it can be a little bit of a fixation. But the other element is really the why. I mean, this is polls at their very best are a mirror of the country. They're they're trying to reflect back at us what who we are, what we think, what our values are, and give us some indication of, you know, how we sort through all of the political information that's out there and make our decisions. And they're one of the most useful tools in doing that. They're not the only tool, 
there, there are many other valuable tools, but they're one of the only ones that um, is truly aiming to be representative in that everybody has a chance to participate. Uh, everyone maybe only has one chance to participate if you're selected. <laughs> Uh, and it's trying to represent the country in all of its various dimensions, which are which are many. So that that's one uh, one reason I, I particularly like polls and passionate about them is that they're trying to they're they're live, trying to live up to the principle, you know, of a little d democracy. Everybody has a say. So that's the, that's the main purpose of them. And then of course there's the uh, the that's the ideal. And then the reality we can talk a lot about and how uh, polls do or do not live up to that. Um, so that I, I I'm a fan of polls as well. They make you feel like super smart, you know. They make you feel like, hey, look at how, you know, you know when people like, uh, you know, they they quote statistics and they quote like, well, you know, 32 percent of people say they some of the times listen to faithful politics, and you're just like uh, super pumped about that. So, but one of my questions though is like how. How is it that you make sure that a poll is a quality poll? Like, like, how is it that we can take a small sample and say and, and extrapolate from that and say, hey, this is how the country feels? Like, how do we do that? Yeah, you're asking the question that statisticians were asking themselves in the 1930s and 40s. And, and they were just when they were just figuring this out. And, you know, that's when... Hmm. Um, Sampling theory was really developed. Uh, this idea that if you if you draw a perfect random sample of any population, whether it's people or businesses or something else like that, if 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 you select one out of a hundred of them, let's say, and there are maybe ten thousand, um, you know, if you get a sample of a certain size and it's random, then and you gather information about each of those people that you interview or businesses that you represent, that you can say something about that overall population uh, that's, that, that's within a certain margin of sampling here. So the classic you know, example, one reason why you see a lot of surveys about a thousand people is that that's about the point where sampling error really starts to come down. So margin of error for a sample of about 100 people. Again, we're talking a little ideal to a perfect sample of 100 people. No matter the size of the population, they have about a margin of error, about 10 percentage points, maybe a little more. You go up to 1,000, again, perfectly random sample, and it's 3.1. So you can get a lot of precision going from 100 to 1,000 people. And that is true no matter whether the, the, the total population size is 10,000, 20,000, or 20 million. It's remarkable. Uh, it's just the way that sampling theory happens to work. You can get more precise in really small populations. If there were 500 employees at your company, you interviewed 100 of them, the margin of error would be lower than for a company that's 25,000. But once you get beyond a certain level of population size, uh, sampling error is your friend in a big way. Uh, in that just the level of random variation that you're going to see if you keep taking random draws from the population will be will be will, will be consistent. There are um, so that was one of the big revelations that revolutionized uh, not only polling but it revolutionized the way the Census Bureau collects data. It's a huge revolution toward what they call probability sampling. I'll just call it random sampling, but essentially it means that everybody in the population has 
some chance of being selected. And that chance is identical. Um, there may be ways that you draw a more complex sample because you're trying to reach more of a particular type of group. You know, say you're interested in understanding the attitudes of people who are, um, I don't know, of a particular age group or the, the, the CDC conducts a survey of um, young parents and people who are uh, who asking about whether their children are immunized. You know, that's a very small sample, right? So you have to do some uh, different techniques to get that. But the basic principles are that you have this core of random sampling. So when you start on what makes a good sample or what, you know, what do you want to go? That's the classic route. Um, of course, actual polling these days, you know, the Census Bureau can draw random samples because they have a universal population registry, right? That they do every year, almost universal, I guess. Even the census the count has some issues, uh, but it's about as good as you can get. And they can they do their federal surveys off of that registry. So they they, they the, the, the registry of households. So that's about the best you can get. Um, the long term for a lot for many years. Uh, polls relied a lot on telephone surveys. That's still true to some extent. We still do a good amount of telephone surveys. Part of the reason is that almost everybody has a cell phone. So you have a, a chance at that ideal. Uh, but one of the big knocks on the ideal is that you can't actually interview everybody. Response rates are, have fallen a lot in the past few decades. It, wasn't, it, was un, it was pretty common in the 80s and 90s. You could get you know, over 50% response rate, which is remarkable. That is unheard of these days. Uh, except for maybe a few federal surveys. So um, a lot of the development in the industry has been trying to overcome that with different different techniques. Um, some of those relate to, uh, and are still, are still being developed, but a lot of those relate to trying to better understand the people who do respond and the people who don't respond and to ensure that your sample is representative on even more characteristics than you might have done before. Sorry for going on on that. That's really good. All good stuff. Yeah. So, like, what are, what are like the variables that you know can affect your data or the stuff that you know may skew your data? And specifically, I'm thinking of two particular incidents. Like, one, you know, like the 2016 election. A lot of people say, "Well, everything said that Clinton was going to win," you know, and she didn't. Or, you know, here recently where we live in Virginia, you know, it was sort of like neck and neck with McCullough and Yunkin, um, Yunkin took it, you know, and, and I, I'm curious on like, like was, are, are there factors that you guys have to think about, you know, when you're talking to people or asking them questions um, that will skew the results or, or is it, or is it just sometimes like polling is wrong? <laughs> well, I'm going to come to the defense of Virginia polling for the moment and say, I, I thought the Virginia polls were pretty good. Uh, you know, the, the final averages of Virginia polls were right around Yunkin plus one. Um, our final poll was McCullough plus one. If you saw our charts, you know, you know, we called it a toss up. And he, Yunkin won by less than two points. So um, one, one thing I'll, I'll make a point on that generally is that polls aren't precise enough to show a leader, a real leader in a, in a race that's actually close, which this one was. You know, this was a two point race. Polls can, can, can tell you that it's close, essentially. That, and we can tell you a lot more than that. We can tell you, you know, how different types of groups are voting, what are motivating issues, things like that. But as far as the pinpoint precision, when you have a margin of error of plus or minus three or four points, you know, you got to take that seriously, right? So that's, uh, that means there's, there's only so much. So 2020 was an example, and 2016, a little to a lesser extent, of where you had what was called systematic bias. I mean, you had polls 
weren't just experiencing random error where you know some polls are missing in one direction and others are missing in another. They were all they there was an average error that underestimated Trump's support in both elections. And um, you know, there's been there was a lot of research right out of 2016 trying to understand that and trying to correct for that. One of the big factors that was identified was that many polls, uh, at least at the state level, were not uh, weighting their samples by educational attainment. So it's common for polls to weight their sample to try to match the population demographic, such as age, race and ethnicity, um, region, um, uh, gender, and, and, and those were the really common ones used by uh, pretty much universally. Education was used in many national polls like ours. It wasn't used in a lot of state polls for some, some reasons that are justifiable, some others that maybe just, you know, the, it, 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 it complicates things to wait by more dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, it makes you, can make your data a little noisier. Um, and anyways, one, one thing that was clear was that polls tended to overestimate the share of voters who had college degrees. That's a really common bias in polls. It's been well known for many, many decades, really. And it's just that it didn't hurt polls for a long time because political views weren't as correlated, as connected with people's educational attainment, with formal education. That really, that really accelerated under Donald Trump's campaign. He had a particular connection with um, uh, white voters without college degrees, uh, to some extent non-white voters without college degrees. Um, and he had a particular <laughs> negative reaction among voters with college degrees. So there was a, a polarization on that that was larger than in past elections, which meant that when poll samples were overrepresenting some group within that, um, that they were more at risk of, of airing. Um, I gotta say 2020, the issues are less clear. Even uh, more than a year after the election, there was um, a big postmortem report by a uh, major survey industry group called the American Association for Public Opinion Research. I'm part of that. And they, um, you know, they, they, they looked under a lot of corners <laughs> to try to see some patterns in where polls miss, why polls miss. And there were some geographic patterns, but it wasn't clear that were, there were a lot of um, differences in the methodology of surveys that were more or less accurate, uh, which is a little concerning uh, because it means that there aren't clear fixes. And I think the, the one other clue from that report is that polls just increasingly need to be paying attention and, and collecting information on the people who do and don't respond to their surveys. Uh, we need to get better at that. Um, and there's, there's a lot of work on that. There's a lot of federal survey work on that area. Um, but it just is really important because, and, you, and we actually embraced more of this in our most recent Virginia polling, uh, where we drew most of our sample from a list of registered voters that had been, um, each voter had been predicted to be either a Democrat or Republican or unsure, really, uh, based on their past participation in partisan primaries. And what we did was we went out and we made all these phone calls to these voters, and uh, we then matched everyone we could back to that database. It's a statewide database maintained. It's a private firm that maintains it, but the actual database is the, is the state's list of registered voters. And the sample is weighted to match those values for partisanship on the file, which can help counteract any patterns in participation. I don't generally think Democrats or Republicans are much more likely to participate in polls 
as a rule, but there can be patterns. Um, there can be patterns. And there were signs of that in 2020 that Democrats were more enthusiastic about taking surveys in that election. Um, and polls need to be prepared for that in the future and be prepared to uh, observe that and actually measure that and then adjust for it as they need. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I hear you saying words like weighted average and margin of error. And I know like I can Google those things and look at Wikipedia or whatever, but I, I think it comes in. So, so my question is to help us understand what those are kind of to demystify the jargon, so to speak. But, but the deeper into that question is the issue of methodologies and what, what, what makes polls different. So I guess if you could help us understand like what, what is like, what kind of things you look at like margin of error and weighting, like the methodology question, what's going on there when we're looking, when we're looking at polls, when we're trying to go behind the scenes. Sure. So one of the first things I look at when I'm encountering a new survey that I've never seen before is I'm interested in any information on how they drew their sample. So um, there are two big buckets of surveys these days. Um, you know, some that are conducted with random sampling, the kind that we were talking about before. These are like ours uh, that we conducted in Virginia where you have a population database or a list of every phone number uh, and and you're, you're, you're calling it in a random sequence and trying to conduct interviews. Um, uh, and then you're, that, 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 that's one area. I think that's a, that's a big plus in a survey when it's conducted that way. It doesn't mean that it's gonna be uh, accurate per se, but it's got that root in random sampling. And the other part of it, um, you know, the alternative is, is using a form of opt-in sampling, which is uh, uh, the uh, try, I, wanna, I don't wanna say to add, drown you in more jargon, but really just the, the, these are usually conducted through online survey panels. If you've ever seen something advertised to you, say, hey, take some surveys online, do this. That's how those panels are built. Uh, they, they bring you in, they offer rewards to take surveys. Usually a lot of consumer products surveys are done in that manner. And um, they're very, they're very uh, economical. They're very cheap to conduct relatively compared to uh, traditional methods. Um, so there's a real value in that, being able to do things in an affordable way. Um, but because they're not using random sampling, they're a little more reliant on their weighting uh, to help them out, uh, whether it's weighting to political characteristics or to just a, a bigger list of demographics that you know can help represent the population. Um, those, uh, Usually if you see an online survey and it's not specifying how they recruited respondents, you're talking about an opt-in sample. Um, doesn't mean it, it's necessarily you know, worth ignoring, uh, but it's worth knowing that that's how they reach people um, in terms of calibrating your expectations for the survey. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of uh, things in between. There are many surveys done with a combination of both. Um, the other things I look for are weighting. You know, first off, do they describe how they weighted the sample. And, and weighting, it can be a very arcane topic, but think of it as just, how do they try to make sure that the population, or that the sample ends up representing the population? You know, did they ensure the sample is representative with regard to the key characteristics that are associated with voting? Gender, age, race and ethnicity, region. Um, you know, if they weigh, if they try to adjust by political characteristics, what 
what were they assuming? Were they saying we're waiting our sample to match the uh, partisanship of a previous election? That's informative. Do you think this election is going to be just like that election? Is that a good assumption? I mean, some of these things can take some time to evaluate. It's hard to sort of sit in an armchair and just say, all right, well, you know, this, I, I like this or not. And I, and I want to, I don't want to encourage necessarily picking apart polls by looking at one thing or another, because the fact is there's going to be some part of any survey that looks maybe just unique. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, if, if, if a sample doesn't look like the population, it, it ought to have a good reason for why. It ought to have a good reason for that. And if it looks very different from other surveys, um, you know, sometimes these are called an outlier poll. Um, you know, first off, we don't know which is going to be accurate, right, until the election day anyway. <laughs> so it's hard to really judge right from there. But the other is I look at that in a positive light. If there are some polls that are published a little bit outside of the mainstream, um, that's a part of the overall data set. You know, that's a part of, part of an overall picture. And, and, and while may, those surveys may turn out to be inaccurate, maybe have to learn how, uh, you know, some, some, have some lessons learned, you know, they can also broaden our perspective a little bit of the, the possibilities because different polling firms use different methods and that generally makes a richer place for understanding public opinion to give us a sense of sort of what the possibilities are. I'll say that not to encourage, you know, sort of like if there's a if there's a survey you see with a, a question wording that you find very biased, that that's a different story. We're talking about basically just trying to trying to provide a good estimate. Yeah. Now, now with with that, like I I I like you sort of separating, kind of like okay, we want to make sure that we've got representative um, data for the whatever geographic region or topic that we're talking about, but like. Like, w one of the things I think. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. I've always struggled with is, is like the categories, you know, that there are. So like, I'll, I'll put myself like as an example like i'm i'm an asian african american you know like um but i'm also like an e evangelical so like you know i don't see polls that say hmm asian african american evangelicals are more likely to vote for x you know than, <laughs> and 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 i and i'm curious on like like what do you say to those groups that are you know that are part of sort of the melting pot of america that aren't represented in sort of like the um the the categories well, you know, this is this is a really common challenge, an increasingly common challenge. I mean, there's been a lot of reporting about the Census Bureau uh, and the census data from 2020 and how there's a growing number of people identifying uh, with multiple different racial categories uh, and, um, you know, or, or just sort of rejecting the boxing of what they want to be classified as. And the census is doing a lot of, you know, work to try to fit people into some meaningful groups, but there's a there's a tension 
underneath that, right? That that is really that, um, you know, that none of these none of these categorizations always fit well. The first thing is I I I'd say is that small every small groups in the population are generally a big challenge for polls. So um, in a survey of a thousand people, uh, you think about you know our threshold for reporting uh, and uh, results among a group is around a hundred interviews. So if a group doesn't make up ten percent of the population, we may have too few interviews with them and to to report confidently what they think. Now, there are answers to this. You could conduct much larger surveys, right? You know, which would be great. Um, I, and and I would be fully in favor of that. <laughs> um, you know, the other is uh, to try to bring together multiple surveys to talk about, you know, smaller groups in the population, or to conduct specialized surveys. And that's where we've often we've often focused. Um, as far as the you know the small overlapping groups or people that really just don't you know fit into a you know multiracial category or something like that, I mean I think that's where the specialized survey really comes into play, where you really recognize that maybe this thousand interview survey is really good for a number of things, uh, including tracking political attitudes over time, but it's going to fall short on being able to for everybody to see themselves in the survey. Uh, only really the larger groups or groups that make up at least 10% will see in the survey. The only caveat I'd say is that those respondents usually are in the survey, right? Now, maybe not exactly, but like certainly there are there there are those groups in the survey and those surveys are often weighted to ensure that, you know, individual racial or ethnic groups or age groups are represented there. We don't wait by evangelical status. We don't have a good benchmark for that. Uh, but I can tell you, we do have plenty of or significant plenty of evangelicals, so we can report on those attitudes. In fact, today we had a story about Roe v. Wade where we we focused on white evangelical Protestants first, and we backed up the view to talk about all evangelicals. And the view the attitudes were a bit different. So I've been getting some some good encouragement from my colleagues on the religion desk that we should do more work like that. I think that can that can help to understand things even when we don't have enough to look at non-white evangelicals specifically in that poll. But um, some of the examples of you know. Specialty surveys are, um, you know, but we certainly don't do a lot of interviews with teenage sample, teenage uh, uh, respondents, but we did one this summer of teens ages 14 to 18, checking in with them. We did a similar survey back in 2005. In 2020, we did a pair of surveys uh, just focused on Black Americans. There were side samples of all adults, but each was a thousand interviews with Ipsos's knowledge panel, which is a a uh, nationally representative household panel, and they um, those the first one in January 2020 really set the stage for our coverage of the Democratic primary, and I thought it was pretty prescient in showing the depth of um, uh, I guess familiarity with Joe Biden um, that ultimately proved to, uh, to to help him win the nomination in South Carolina, though it wasn't a South Carolina poll, so. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a challenge that polls just continually need to get better at. And part of the, the riddle is that some of the groups that are smallest and also most underrepresented in surveys are also the most difficult to draw quality samples of. So this is one where 
online interviews like I talked about, the opt-in surveys where people join panels, they struggle to reach Latinos who speak Spanish. That's a really important segment of the Latino population. Uh, so if you're conducting surveys online, you might have to limit yourself to English only or use particular lists or things like that to supplement that. Um, it goes down the list for other things. There was a, a very interesting research panel last week, not a survey panel, but it was talking about these kind of challenges of surveying Asian Americans and how to, there, there's a lot of work going in to improve that uh, surveys among those groups. But the main thing that aligns them is that they're, uh, it's in order to do a really good job with it and do it well, do it the justice that it really deserves, it costs a lot of money. And it costs a lot mm -hmm. more money than a normal survey. So I don't, I don't offer that as an excuse by any means to not do it. I just mean to be on the real side of, you know, when it, it, we, it's not simply, I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of just reporting a small sample of a group that we hardly reach in a survey, and hoping that that's okay. I think we should only report results that we are confident in. And in order to do that, you got to invest in um, some higher quality metrics. Who, who, um, who do you think has the best, and maybe this is kind of a loaded question because you don't want to, anyways, um, who, who has the best polling? Um, I've heard it said that Fox does a pretty good job with their, with their polling. Um, but I, I'm curious if you had, um, you know, any thoughts about that? I mean, like, we'll, we'll, we'll just naturally assume Washington Post, BBC, whatever, has like the top rated. So like, maybe the better question is who has the second best <laughs> polling? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't have a ranking, uh, though I think there are a, a number of places that do really professional work, and and they, what what I mean by that is that they're committed to investing in quality research and learning and improving it, which I think are the two critical elements that uh, are going to serve polls well going forward. Um, I mean, it's it's hard not to mention the Pew Research Center atop, you know, a, a, along among any group, because they have not only conducted an enormous number of high quality uh, projects, but they've invested in the kind of hard to reach populations um, that I was talking about. And in fact, you know, they they did a real landmark survey on um, multiracial Americans a, a few years ago, which. Uh, you know, doing that kind of work, it's just, it, so many people don't do it because it's too expensive, too complicated, too difficult. They really don't back down. And that is appreciated. Um, Kaiser Family Foundation, um, biased because we partner with them on a number of things, uh, really ace polling team, um, big, big commitment to research and design. We work with them on some of our most complicated projects. Uh, we did a survey of healthcare workers earlier this year. We're on the front frontline healthcare workers to get their experiences of vaccination and other things. Um, and then, I don't know, I mean, I'll tick off a few others. I feel like the teams that uh, conduct polls at Fox News are very, are very good, they're professional. I think the, you know, the, the company and the organization get a lot of, you know, uh, have a different, you know, reputation or, or, or element about them. But the, the, the polling team I know personally, and they, they, they're, they're professional, they're committed to doing things well, and Investing in their research, same thing. Associated Press. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna fail to, to mention everybody who I think is is doing great work. But you know, major major 
national media organizations, I'm going to sound pretty biased on this, but they've long invested in high quality work. It's been sort of part and parcel. 1981 was when the Washington Post ABC News poll began. And, uh, you know, the Washington Post was one of the first subscribers to George Gallup's column back in the 30s. We've had, you know, our interest in polling for a really, really long time. It's still very strong. I think um, a lot of the places and organizations that are passionate about this work, need it, need it to be high quality. Um, they're investing in it and, you know, but make your, make your own judgments, you know, look at track records, do, you know, all, all that, um, you know, and, and, and also I think the only other caution I'd say is that keep in mind if there are ideological groups affiliated with survey, uh, political ideological groups, um, you know, I don't want to be too cynical because many of those groups do do public opinion polls to measure reality, try to help guide their strategies and things like that. But that's also the territory where you see some polls that are conducted with the purpose of proving a point, with the purpose of showing that public opinion uh, is something. And that's where you know, we found this recently in a survey that was about support for uh, uh, support for repealing the Hyde Hyde Act or Hyde Amendment, which uh, bars federal funds uh, being spent on uh, abortion services. Well, there, there was a, an advocacy poll that uh, had been put out in a memo and uh, not much information was about the poll. Once our fact checker dug into it, found that there were a series of leading questions that were asked ahead of the important question in that poll. And um, that wasn't presented. And that that's always disheartening because, you know, I, 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 I I'd like to assume that everybody that's conducting this kind of work is really just trying to uh, figure out what public opinion is, not shape it to mean it. I think most of the most of the major pollsters are genuinely trying to do that. But there's, you know, uh, the incentives for being accurate and being fair are very high. So uh, I, I I certainly feel that. So um, and and reputations are on the line on that. So. I, I think there's is where we're there's, there's plenty of, of good quality polls out there, uh, though as I mentioned, the good quality doesn't mean precise. Good quality doesn't mean always you know pinpoints. So there's a you know a sort of trust level, but also a you know what's that was that big old grain of salt you know. Yes, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And this is uh, this is the last question, Scott. I love uh, I've been super interested in what you've been saying. But uh, if you had unlimited resources and unlimited money to conduct any poll that you would want to choose, what, what would be the question that you would want answered or what, what, what would you want to, like, what are you interested in? What, what do you want to know? Personal or professional? Yeah, either way. <laughs> this is such a great question. And of course, my answer is I can't decide. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's way, way too many. Um, I, you know, I think, you know, the areas where we don't do as much polling, but where I think there's a lot to be learned is um, lear learning about people's people's personal connections, people's personal lives, and how those relate to various other attitudes. Um, some of the really is really inspired out of the kind of reporting that my colleagues do when when they're telling interesting stories about or across the country finding you know uh you know people with just such a jumble of experiences and beliefs and you know 
they don't always add up to their, you know, political attitudes in a predictable way. And I think that's interesting. I think that we see a lot of predictable, we know, we know a lot of people's attitudes in politics are predictable, and that's fine. It's good to track that. But understanding the deviations from that, understanding the complexities, that's where I think, um, you know, larger surveys that dig into some of those uh, relationships can be very interesting. That's, really that's awesome. Cool. You know, I, I would I would argue Facebook probably has a, a pretty good beat on all of that um, already, but I digress. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, Scott, so much for spending some time with us. This was super, super informative, educational. Um, I know I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And we just, uh, yeah, we thank you for just all the great work you're doing over there. So uh, Yeah, thank you, Scott. Sure. Appreciate having me on. And uh, yeah, hope to hope to be in touch.